listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. To learn more about Central Sanford, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. Wow, what an incredible time of worship. Thank you for being with us today as we celebrate just a risen Savior. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. And I know that many of you are anticipating June the 7th. I'm here in the worship center just to remind you that we still have one of these. And I cannot wait till uh, I have the privilege of being able to preach to a live audience. Uh, it, it is very difficult. And I want to just give a special shout out to all our tech workers, all of the people that are working behind the scenes here at Central to provide this uh, content and the ability for us to worship together uh, on this platform. And we're going to continue to do that for some of you that maybe don't feel comfortable in coming back. We're going to be continuing to provide that great online worship experience. And we want you to just come back when you feel comfortable. But you are truly loved here at Central. We're going to be ending the book of Esther today, this series uh, called The Unseen God. And I want you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter 8 is where we're going to begin. Uh, and uh, we want to be praying for all of our missionaries around the world, all the unreached, unengaged people groups. Last week you saw that video of uh, our mission team that was in Honduras. We want to be praying for the Forgotten Children's Ministry in Honduras. Be praying for those kids and just pray that God would use this season of crisis to provide a great awakening around our world where many people can come to Christ. Well, let's look here in Esther chapter 8. And we're going to be in chapter 8 and in chapter 9 today. Verse number one. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had given for, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I found favor in your sight, and if, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in your eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadathai, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how could I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and seal with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Now chapter 9 verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which was the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Now chapter 9 verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the fourteenth day of the month Adar, and also the fifteenth day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another, and gifts to the poor." 
On November the 7th, 1944, the, the great author J.R.R. Tolkien, the writer of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, penned a letter to his son Christopher in which he gave Christopher a new word that he invented, a word that he said came as a vision to his heart that makes real every fairy tale story. Just this one word encapsulates what makes fairy tales great. He, he gave this word to his son, and it's, it's, a, it's an interesting word. It's eucatastrophe. The definition essentially is a good catastrophe. He writes to his son and he said this. He says, I coined the word eucatastrophe. It means the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. So a way to maybe describe eucatastrophe is like snapping back a bone that was out of joint back into place. Or it would be like when you think you owe taxes to the IRS only to find out you're actually getting a check. A eucatastrophe in my life was when Kentucky finally beat Florida in football. That was a joyful relief. It was a change of events. It was a great reversal. Well, as we end the book of Esther, we see a eucatastrophe. Everything in the book of Esther up till chapter 7 looked very bleak for the people of God. It looked very, uh, very horrific for Esther and Mordecai. And when you get to chapter 7, there's a ray of hope that leads to the sun again shining on God's people. God's people go from doom and gloom to shouting and rejoicing. And, and what we see is, is there's just this dramatic turn of events that happens. And we know by reading the entire story that the hand of God was in it. But as we read the entire book of Esther, we notice that God's name is not mentioned anywhere in the books, book, but yet His fingerprints of His providence are on every page. So chapters 8 and 9 are going to show us how God brought about a sudden happy turn in the story through the intercession of Esther that led to salvation and celebration for God's people. So let's begin with intercession. In chapter 7, just want to give you a quick recap. When Esther came to the second banquet, she came with three things. One, she came with a premise. She came to King Xerxes and she says, I am your queen and I have found favor in your sight. But then she comes with a petition. She says, honey, I need you to save my life. Now, the thought there isn't so much because King Xerxes loved her. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But essentially, because she was the queen, an assault on the queen, which Haman was doing, was an assault on the king. And so the third thing she comes with is a perpetrator. King wants to know, well, whose idea was this? And she says, it's Haman. And basically she says, he wants me and my people dead. And so when Xerxes hear this, hears this news, he storms out. And, and the reason why I think he has a storm out is because he's trying to think about what he's going to do next because clearly he didn't think before. Well, as he leaves the room, Haman stays with Esther. Now, this may not seem very important, but this is actually a huge part of, we don't understand just the, the customs and even the law of that day. In that day, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no male was allowed to be in the same room with a woman who was in the king's harem alone. They were not supposed to be there alone. Well, Haman was supposed to have left when King Xerxes left, but instead he stays with Esther and he begs her forgiveness, even to the point where he accidentally lunges on to Esther. And in that moment, Xerxes walks in and now Xerxes has both a legal and a moral reason to execute Haman. So Haman, who nobody seemed to like because the servants of the king said, hey, king, we know what we could do with Haman. Uh, he built this 75-foot-high gallows to kill Mordecai the Jew on. Uh, why don't you use that to kill him on? And so he was taken 
away to those gallows. Now, the gallows here can be translated a tree or a place where someone is impaled. It was a high, a high place. And, and normally it was just a place of a public spectacle. And in this day, it was a curse to be killed on a tree. So here, Haman the Great is going to be killed on the device of his own making. And there's just a lot that we can say about that. When we get to chapter 8, we notice that Haman is dead and his plan to destroy the Jews has been revealed. Esther is given Haman's house, so she had to kick out Haman's family. And Esther then gives that house to Mordecai. And in doing so, Esther reveals to the king who Mordecai is to her, that she is uh, uh, his adopted daughter and that Mordecai is her cousin that is her adopted father. And so in, in all of this, the king gives the ring, that signet ring that was on Haman's uh, hand to Queen Esther that gives it to Mordecai. Now, what this means is this. Mordecai, when in that moment, was given second in command of the entire empire. Now you have a Jewish queen and a Jewish vice president. This signet ring, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, is the king's power of attorney. So basically, Mordecai is running the entire empire. It is a complete reversal from rags to riches type story. And it makes us think of the Proverbs in Proverbs 11, verse 8, in which the Bible says that the righteous is delivered from trouble and the wicked walks into it instead. One of the big truths we learn in the Bible is this. Sin never wins. Faith never fails and God never loses. So don't be weary in doing good. You will reap if you don't give up. Well, here, Esther and Mordecai, they sowed in tears. They risked, but they won. And in this moment in chapter 8, they, they are, we could seemingly think that the story could end. They were safe. They were rich. They were powerful. They were famous. They were comfortable. But yet the story doesn't end there because they weren't satisfied with being comfortable. They weren't satisfied with living only for themselves. See, if you think about this, they could have just returned back home and pursued their own comfort and their own pleasure while the rest of the people, the rest of the Jews could have been annihilated. But in this moment, Esther doesn't think just of herself. In verse number three, the Bible says, Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman. She falls at his feet. This is the first time we see really any big emotion from Esther. And she is begging the king to stop Haman's evil decree of annihilating the Jews. She takes another risk. She in this moment has to wait like she did before for the king to lower, to raise his scepter, to give her an audience. She could have been assassinated. She could have been killed on the spot, executed, if the king did not regard her. But she risked anyway. Why? Because in verse number six, she's going to say, how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? How can I live in this palace while I know that 15 million Jews are living under the threat of extermination? She's In this moment, she says, I can't just live comfortable. I can't just live for myself. I can't just do nothing. Edmund Burke said this, he says, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for a good man to do nothing. Just this week, we saw the, the, the horrible, brutal murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And that great injustice, Martin Luther King Jr. said it best. He said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And that's why in this moment, we as a church have to stand for the for the truth and we have to stand up against racism of any form and we have to stand up against any kind of injustice we see in our society. We cannot just stand by and do nothing. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is a German pastor who died in World War II, he died because he stood up against the Nazi regime. And here's what he wrote. He says, if I sit next to a madman as he drives a car into a group of innocent bystanders, I can't as a Christian simply wait for the catastrophe, then comfort the wounded and bury the dead. I must try to wrestle the steering wheel out of the hands of the driver. That's what Esther does. She sees the the truck barreling down on her people and she was not just going to be satisfied in watching it hit and then cleaning up the wreckage. She has to do something. So in this moment, she intercedes. She intercedes on behalf of those who were under the sentence of death. She loves her people. She is passionate about her people. She sees that this is an urgent situation, that there is no time to waste and she's going to do whatever it takes to save her people in this moment. There's an ancient saying in the Talmud that says this, if not now, when? If not us, who? The question I want to ask all of us as we think about just our day and think about our own life is this, what do you think about the most? What consumes your thoughts? Like today, what, what are you thinking about? Or, or yesterday, or when you go to work tomorrow, what, what do you think about? Do you think about your job? Do you think about your family? Do you think about what others think about you? Do you think about your money, your investments? Do you think about your upcoming vacations? Do you think about your comfort or pleasure or food? Here's what I found. What you love the most is what you think about the most and what you often will do whatever it takes for it. And so the question I want to have for all of us is do you and I ever think about other people and where they will spend eternity? Many of us live just in our own little worlds completely oblivious to everything around us. You know, it's been told in America that every year over 100 firefighters and over 150 police officers will give their lives in the line of duty, saving other people's lives. And as I think about those statistics, which I want to thank God for brave men and women in law enforcement and first responders. Thank God for all of you. But if you think about this, if a first responder is willing to risk their life in order to save people they do not know from physical danger, how much more should you and I, who have been saved and, and forgiven by the grace of God, be willing to do whatever it takes to save people from spiritual danger? I mean, think about this. When's the last time you've prayed for somebody who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus? When's the last time you got down on your knees to pray for a family member, to pray for a friend, to pray for a, a co-worker, a neighbor? When's the last time you've prayed for somebody that is far from God? Paul Chitwood, who is the president of the International Mission Board on who I serve as a trustee, said this in a meeting recently. He said that there are some 155,000 people who die every day without a relationship with Jesus Christ. 155,000. Just this week, we saw the horrible news that over 100,000 people have died from the coronavirus in the United States. Well, worldwide, 155,000 people every day die and spend eternity away from God. That should get our attention. We can't just sit here and be silent. We can't sit here and do nothing. We need to share the gospel because what's going to fix injustice in this world, what's going to fix the problems of this world is not government intervention. It is Christians preaching the gospel and expanding the kingdom of God until Jesus returns. So in this moment, Esther makes this request to the king and in verses 7 and 8, the king grants her request. Now listen. Xerxes could care less about the Jews, but he cared about Esther and, he, and she had favor in his sight. And, and you think about this. He could care less, but yet she asked. 
We have free access to the king of the universe who wants what we want in seeing people come to him. And we can come to him anytime we want because we know he wants to save people from hell. Esther and Mordecai came to the king or Esther came to the king who wasn't really, he didn't care about the Jews at all. We come to a king who cares about everybody and we need to come to him. So the king grants a request. Esther and Mordecai are then given the authority to write up any law they want to reverse this decree that, that Haman had penned before. And this counter decree that was written by Mordecai basically was good news to all the Jews. It would set the people free in the empire from feeling compelled to kill their Jewish neighbors and to plunder from them. And it also warned anyone if they did attack the Jews that the Jews could stand up for themselves. So this decree has now been written. Now what's to be done? Well, in verses 9 through 14, we see what Mordecai and Esther do. What is their response? They've got this, this, this king's uh, uh, signet ring. They have the authority to make the decree. They have now written this good news. What do they do? Are they satisfied with just, well, we wrote it and we're done? No, they get the news to everyone they can. They tell everybody what the king has done. They are now evangelists of the good news and they want the good news to get out to everyone in the empire. As you read verses 9 through 14, you'll see that this good news, this edict, was translated to, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language. The news was translated so everyone could understand it in their own language. And here's something cool. You know, they didn't have Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. They didn't have email. They didn't even really have um, any, any television or broadcasting. They had snail mail. But this snail mail was basically a Pony Express. And the Bible says that these horses that were sent out to the 127 provinces were fast horses because they were bred by the royal stud of the king. It, that, 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 that horse had a lot of horsepower. But anyway, here's what I want you to get. It is not enough just to have the good news. The good news must be shared. It's been said that good news is only good news if it gets there in time. So Haman's order was originally for the 13th day of the 12th month. That was the day of the final solution where all the Jews were to be annihilated. The day here that we're giving the time sequence in chapter 8 is that the day that this uh, order, the new order was, was given uh, by Mordecai was the third month and the 23rd day, which meant if you just do the math, there's about nine months for the word to spread around the empire. And even though there was nine months, there were millions of people that needed to hear this good news. Listen, we don't know how long we have until Jesus returns. We don't know how long people have, but the time is the time is late and the need is great. Paul wrote to the Romans and he said this in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How can they believe if they've never heard? How can people know the good news if they've never heard it? Every one of you that is a Christian, every one of you that has been transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ, you have been transformed by this because God loves you, but because someone else loved you. 
Because someone else took the time to translate God's word to you so that you can understand. Someone pled on your behalf to God. Someone took the time to tell you about Jesus. Someone loved you enough to care for your eternal soul and to keep you from hell. So Esther and Mordecai, they get the word out. Then you get to the end of chapter 8 in verses 15 and 16, and Mordecai leaves the palace. He sent out the Pony Express. He is now in new royal robes. As a matter of fact, I think it's interesting that it tells us the color of these royal robes. Blue and white. What's your favorite color, baby? Blue and white, just like me. Go UK. <laughs> he, get a, he got a crown on his head, and then the Bible says that he got in his brand new XLR chariot. Actually, it doesn't say that in the Bible, but he got in his brand new chariot, and all the city shouted and rejoiced when they saw him. The people of Susa went from weeping to shouting. It was, it was a joy, uh, a victory for, for the people of the land. And, and this, this victory was the victory that wasn't yet secured. It was promised and it was anticipated. It was announced, but it wasn't secured. But everywhere the news went, there was joy. And there's something interesting. At the end of verse 16, the Bible tells us, that many people, that many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen upon them. The word, the good news had spread all throughout the empire that people who weren't Jews became Jews. People that didn't believe in God, didn't believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob became believers. When the gospel spreads, people get saved. God used this crisis to get people into his kingdom. God doesn't waste crises in, in your life. God doesn't waste a good crisis. He uses these crisis situations to get our attention and to bring people to Him. Do you realize that God wants to see people saved? I believe with all of my heart that one of the great things that's going to come out of COVID-19 is that many people are going to come to the kingdom. And my prayer is that God would use you and me to bring them into the kingdom. So we see here this intercession, and this intercession is going to lead to the next point, and that is salvation. And we see this in chapter number 9 and verse number 1. The Bible says that the 12th month and the 13th day had arrived. Scholars say that that's March the 7th, 443 B.C. This is the day, if you remember, that when Haman rolled the dice, this is the day that the dice fell on. This was supposed to be the day of the final solution in which the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them. Now, I want you to imagine if you were a Jewish person living in the empire and it was the 12th day and that night you couldn't sleep because think of the suspense. Think of the anticipation that you just had in your mind. What's going to happen on the 13th day? Did everyone get the message? Did everyone hear what the king said to not attack the Jews? Did everyone hear that the Jews could defend themselves? What is going to happen? Everyone in this moment held on with bated breath. But instead, notice what the Bible says. The, Jew, the, the enemies of the Jews hoped to get mastery over them. But then the Bible says, I love this verse, verse number one, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The people were scared of the Jews. And yes, as you read the rest of the chapter, there are a handful of rebels, but they were all defeated. This was probably the most anticlimactic statement in the entire book. This day, all the anticipation of everything has been built up to this one point. It just says, listen, what everyone thought was going to happen didn't happen. The reverse occurred. The enemies thought they were going to win, but they actually didn't win at all. The opposite happened. 
With the enemy schemed for evil, the opposite happened. Salvation that had just been promised a few months ago was now a reality. The day that was supposed to have been the day of ultimate defeat was a day of complete victory. Now, here's what I want you to think about. We have the luxury of reading the entire book and we know the end of the story. But really, if you just think about the words of Mordecai, when Mordecai, even before he knows anything, even before Haman dies on his own gallows, even before any of this, Mordecai says in chapter 4, verse 14, to Esther, if you keep silence, delivery for the Jews will arise from another place. In Mordecai's mind, the outcome was never in question, that victory was already won. He didn't know how, he didn't know who, but he knew what. He knew that God was going to save his people somehow and some way. See, God... The reason that Mordecai could, could have this confidence in chapter 4 is because he knew that God made promises to his people. He made promises to Abraham in Genesis 15. He made promises to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He made promises to Israel all throughout the writings of Isaiah and Ezekiel. And here's the big picture of the Bible. The story of the Bible is about our God who keeps all of his promises, delivers his people, and defeats all his enemies. Now, in the middle of the story... We don't always understand what God is up to. The path seems uncertain. And we begin in the middle of our story to begin to wonder what, what God are you doing and why are you allowing things to happen the way you're allowing them to happen? But even though what God does seems to be uncertain to us, the end is still unchanged. So I want you to listen to this one thought. Do not judge things by how they appear now. Don't judge things by how you see them now. Don't judge God by the middle of the story because there's a bigger picture. You know, my kids and I in the midst of this pandemic have spent a lot of time watching Disney movies. And uh, because of Disney Plus, there are not a lot of movies, uh, Disney movies that my kids haven't seen. But it's always kind of really fun for me as a dad to watch a movie with them that they have never seen before. And, and to kind of watch their faces and to kind of get their body language. You know, I told you before that I get really wrapped up in these movies. And, and I see that also in my kids. And so in the middle of, of, of some of the movies, you know, things seem hopeless. Uh, th things seem scary. It seems like Cruella DeVille has her upper hand. It, it seems like Jafar is going to win. It seems like Scar is going to rule the, 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 the world and, and that all these sad things are going to happen. And, and it's amazing that my kids will come to me and they'll be in the middle of the movie and they know I've seen it and they'll say, Dad, how's this going to end? They'll come to me over and over and over again. How's this going to end? How's this going to end? And as a dad, I want to tell them, but you're not supposed to ruin the movie. And so what I'll say is this, just wait. You'll see. Just wait. You'll see. I know there's a happy ending. Just wait. You'll see. Well, right now in your life and right now with what's going on in COVID-19, what's going on in your, your world and your family, it seems like God seems nowhere. But yet, I want you to get in your mind that if you are a Christian, the outcome is assured that there is a happy ending. You can trust that God knows all things and that you know that the end is secure. And you can... You can celebrate that victory, which gets me to the last point, the celebration. In chapter 9, in verse 20, you're going to see that Mordecai says that on the 14th and 15th day of the 12th month, there's going to be a festival every year called Purim. And, and the word Purim or Purim 
is a plural word, a plural form of the word per. Now, that word per means to throw the dice. It's a, it's, it's a holiday that's celebrated in Las Vegas every day. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of feasting. It's a, a time of joy. I've been to Israel a couple of times during the season of Purim, and, and it is a party in Israel because the Bible says here that it's, it's the day that the people of God are to remember that God gave rest, God gave relief to God's people from their enemies. See, it was to be a reminder to the people of God of God's faithfulness and His salvation. Even to this day, Jews read on Purim the entire book of Esther. One of the things they do that whenever they hear the word Haman, they hiss. And, and they go, boo. Well, it was to be read out loud, and, and it's to remind the people of Israel and to remind God's people that even though you cannot see where God is, you could always trust what He is doing. One of the Jewish songs that is sang during Purim is this. The line says this, All the world was struck with amazement when Haman's purr became Purim. See, God is able to take even the darkest days of our lives and use them for good to bring victory into your life, to take you from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday. Purim reminds God's people that the end is never uncertain, and you and I can celebrate what God has done as a guarantee we know what God is going to do. Why? Because the Feast of Purim is a shadow of what Jesus came to do. Jesus took what appeared to be absolute defeat and brought about absolute triumph. On the cross, it appeared that Satan had won, but on the third day, God reversed it. With the enemy scheme to be the demise of Jesus, Jesus took and defeated the enemy. And that's why... Gathering on Sunday is important. Every Sunday when we gather, whether online or in the room, when we gather, it's important because we remember and we celebrate. Going to church isn't just checking off a box. Coming and worshiping together with the people of God is not just something you do to, so that you can feel good about yourself. You do it because it's a day that you remember what Jesus has done. You know why we worship on Sunday? It's the first day of the week. Well, why is that important? Because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Every Sunday when we gather together on the Lord's Day, we gather to remember what Jesus did in saving us, and we celebrate His victory, overcoming death, hell, sin, and the grave, providing us rest from our enemies, and we worship together, longing for that day of complete rest. That's why it is important to gather every Sunday. Now, as we live our lives in this world, when things get tough, when people are mean, when the culture is hostile, we have to know how the story ultimately ends. Here's how the story ends in your life. Here's how the story ends in the book of Esther. God rescues His people and crushes His enemies. There is no suspense. There is no surprise. God wins. You may not understand what God is doing. You may think that God could care less about you. You may be wondering, why is God allowing all these bad, evil things to happen in my life? But I want you to understand, the end is assured. 
that these light momentary afflictions prepare us for a greater weight of glory that is to come. That is why we celebrate. That is why we worship. We worship the God who cannot lose, who always wins. And so as we end the book of Esther, I want to end with this. The book of Esther is just a picture of the larger story of the Bible. It is a story that points us to Jesus. And I want to just do this right here. I want to show you Jesus in this book. First, I want you to see that Jesus is the true and better King Xerxes, who doesn't use people, but loves people. Xerxes was a man who thought he was God. Jesus is the true God who became man. Xerxes used his position to take lives. Jesus used his position to save lives. Xerxes was a man who lived to be served. Jesus is the true God who came to this world to serve others. Jesus is the true and better King Xerxes. Two, Jesus is the true and better Mordecai, who didn't compromise to fit in, but was completely without sin. See, Mordecai saved people from one nation, but Jesus saves people from every nation. Mordecai was able to serve God's people in his generation, but Jesus serves people in every generation. Mordecai saved people from premature death. Jesus saves people from eternal death. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace, but lost ultimately the heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save people. See, Esther identified with her people so that she could intercede to, for them to save them from death. God's people are spared eternal death because Jesus identifies with us and intercedes to God on our behalf. Jesus offers a true and better rest for God's people. All throughout the Bible, people are longing for rest. And when they get it, they're excited, but it doesn't last long. Many of you are longing for rest. You're looking forward to a vacation. If you read the Old Testament stories where Moses provided rest for God's people, David and Solomon and even Esther provides rest for God's people, but it's temporary. Jesus offers true and lasting rest for God's people that money cannot buy and death cannot take away. And Jesus says, come to me, all you that are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Jesus offers a true and better feast for God's people. Yes, on Purim, the people of God were to remember what God had done in saving the Jews. And they were to feast. And they were to never forget that the God who, whose name is not mentioned in the book is everywhere. That even though you can't see Him, you can trust Him. But on that dark day, when the people had no idea what God was doing on that dark Friday in Jerusalem, on the cross, what appeared to be God losing what appeared to be Satan having the upper hand, what appeared to be God's enemies having the upper hand on him. Even the disciples who celebrated Purim probably just a month prior to this, they thought it was over. But Jesus, on that cross and in that empty tomb, conquered his enemies. And he invites those of us who put our faith and trust in him to a feast where one glorious day in heaven, we will feast with Him for all eternity. We, when we take the Lord's Supper together, when we take that, those elements and we remember what Christ has done and we celebrate what Christ is going to do, it is a feast that is just a foreshadow of a greater feast that we will have in heaven where our weeping will be turned to dancing and our sorrow will be turned to joy. 
That is the eternal hope. That is the lasting peace. That is the Christian joy of our faith. Because Jesus is the true and better of all. And so my question to you is this. Do you have that joy? Do you have that peace? Do you have that assurance? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Jesus came in and He brought the greatest reversal, the catastrophe. He turned it. When we were dying and on our way to hell, He turned it so that we can now live with Him forever in heaven. And we have that peace, we have that joy, we have that assurance through faith in Jesus Christ. My hope is, is that you have that. My hope is, is that you trust in Him. And at this time, I want to invite you that if you don't have a relationship with Him, to have a relationship with Him. But I also want to talk very candidly to the church. I want to say that as we go into this new season as a, as a central church, as we go, as we regather, we cannot just live for ourselves. We have to think of other people. We have to see people around us needing the hope of the gospel that we have. The good news is only good news if it gets there in time. We must be pleading. We must be praying. We must be going out and rescuing the perishing and caring for the dying, standing for the gospel, standing for the truth, standing for justice and pointing people to the good news that Jesus Christ can save anybody. That's what we need to be doing today. That God can take anyone's life and turn it into a you catastrophe that He can reverse anyone's curse and He can reverse yours. Today in this moment, you can trust Jesus as your Savior. I'm going to pray right now and while I'm praying, you can trust Jesus as your Savior. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank You for today. I thank You for this privilege of preaching Your Word and I pray God for anyone who is here that doesn't know You as Savior that in this moment they would turn from their sins, they would trust You as their Savior, they would ask You to forgive them and to be the Lord and Savior of their life. God, I pray for our church as we enter into this new territory, this new season, as we regather, Lord, that you would give us the boldness to be on fire for sharing the gospel in this day, to not allow our fear to keep us from serving you and telling others about you, that, God, we would risk it all to share your gospel. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've made a decision today or you want to take a next step for Jesus, maybe you want to be baptized or maybe you want to join a, a, a central group, a small group here at Central, or maybe you feel God's calling you to serve Him in a greater way, or maybe you have a prayer request or a special need, I want you to let us know by texting into this number 407-338-4024. 407-338-4024. You text in, text your name and tell us what your next step is and we will respond to you immediately to help you in your walk with God. I pray that God takes His Word and uses it to give you joy today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. For more information or how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.net.